0: You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 3 this morning. Psalm 3, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, page 448 is where you will find that text. And we're continuing on, as we will be throughout the summer, uh, in our Summer in the Psalms series. Um, And so we've arrived, I guess we could say we've arrived at Psalm 3. Um, If we were really doing this series the right way, if we're going to do the Psalms the right way, we would have started where that book actually begins, in Psalm 1, and done Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And the reason I say that is because the first two Psalms are actually foundational, and they offer foundational truth that helps us navigate the rest of the Psalms, the rest of the 150 that we find in this book. Uh, we've preached on Psalm 1 here a couple times in years gone by, so I would encourage you if you're interested to go track that down uh, in, our, in our sermon archive. Uh, someday I'm sure we'll do Psalm 2, we have not yet, but Psalm 1 says, in short, you need God's word. If I could sum up Psalm 1 in a single phrase, that's it, you need God's word. Uh, You are blessed when you delight and meditate on what God has revealed about himself. And then Psalm 2 says, the king is on his throne. The king is on his throne. David is installed as the king in Jerusalem. Psalm 2 is, of course, pointing through David, ultimately to Jesus, the eternal king who will reign forever. Every time then that you read a psalm, whether it's this morning in Psalm 3 or last week, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, every time you read a psalm, Start with those two things. I need God's word, and the king is on his throne. Those are the core truths uh, through which we can rightly understand and navigate the rest of the the Psalms. An author named Courtney Reisig puts it this way, you need Psalm 1 and 2 because of what is waiting for you in the Psalms after them. You need Psalm 1 and 2 because of what is waiting for you in the Psalms after them. And today we're going to see how true... That is because immediately after them, the very next Psalm, Psalm 3, there's an imminent threat. And David, this man after God's heart, the the true king, the ideal king of Israel, is deposed. And he's no longer on the throne. He's fleeing from Jerusalem as one of his sons named Absalom enters and sets himself up as the king in David's place. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is the third psalm. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord, as your disciples once cried out, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so help us now in these moments we have together this morning to hear what you will say to us and to respond in faith. And I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable, but would be pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Psalm 3 is a psalm about fear. A psalm about fear. And so let's seek to answer two questions this morning in light of this psalm. What causes fear? And then what calms or combats fear? What causes fear, and then what calms or combats it. So first, what causes fear? And King David points out two things in this psalm that cause fear. Eyes and lies. Eyes and lies. So our eyes, our circumstances, our present situation, what we can see with our eyes, and lies, soul-level lies that we believe about God or about ourselves. Verse 1 is about David's eyes. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. And for David, this was no exaggeration. As it says there in the little introduction, which is actually part of the original psalm, the original text of the Bible, uh, Psalm 3 is recalling David's flight from one of his sons named Absalom. Uh, If you have the opportunity later today or sometime this week, I would encourage you to go read the entire account. You can find it in 2 Samuel 15-19. through Uh, But here is the the quick recap of a very dark episode in the history of of David's family. So David had a son named Absalom. He had another son from a different mother named Ammon. Ammon raped Absalom's sister Tamar, his half-sister. Two years after that, in revenge, Absalom murders Ammon and then flees Jerusalem. He runs away. Eventually, David brings back Absalom brings him back to Jerusalem, but when he brings him back, he keeps him at arm's length. He, he neither rebukes and corrects him for murdering his brother in revenge, nor reconciles with him. He just kind of hopes that time is going to take care of it. He's like, as long as we're in the same town, we'll just give it a few months, a few years, hope it, hope it goes okay. Absalom gets really tired of waiting around, and so he starts to gather a group of disillusioned, disgruntled people to himself. He hangs out at the city gate, and his people come in. He's like, man, if only there were somebody that like, took up your cause in front of the king. I guess I could, I could be that guy. You'd have to kind of follow me, though. You'd have to kind of be on my team. And this eventually builds into a full-blown conspiracy against David that includes some of his closest friends and some of his personal advisors. Absalom then ultimately declares himself to be the king and with this band of people, with this army of people, marches into Jerusalem, not long after David has, has fled. And so now, as David is writing this psalm either in that moment or reflecting back on that moment some years later, we're not exactly sure, it seems like it's only a matter of time before Absalom's followers are going to catch up to him and, and put him to death. So this is what David's eyes see in this moment. And understandably, that causes him fear. His life, the lives of some of those most loyal to him, some of his family members and friends, are in jeopardy. So let's make sure we recognize first this morning, a certain kind of fear is good. A certain kind of fear is good. When there's a real threat, it's good that you have a physiological and psychological reaction of fear and react to that. Some years back, I was out for a run and as I was running by this one house, out of the front door came bounding a German shepherd. Just took off out the front door, across the front yard, It made a beeline for me. I'm glad in that moment that I wasn't like, this is fine. I'm okay. We'll just see how this plays. I'm glad I felt fear, and that it prompted me to start looking for something to, to climb or to jump on. I did get bit once, but I think it would have been worse if I had just kind of waited and, and hung out. You can correct me later if you're a dog lover and you're like, you did it all wrong. And Okay, I'll, I'll take that. Some kind of fear is good, even for warriors. So you think of the fight or flight response that we have in some of those moments. No one's a fighter like David. I mean, he is the penultimate warrior in Scripture. Sometimes fighters should flee. And actually, in this moment, it was good that David got himself and those loyal to him out of the city in this moment when it was just chaotic and he didn't even know what was going on. But as I'm sure that you can attest as well, fears about our circumstances can become all-consuming very quickly. And rather than these short bursts of fear, which are helpful, it can become prolonged and paralyzing fear. Those short bursts of fear are are meant to preserve our lives. That's why they exist in in our physiological bodies and why they exist in our minds. They're meant to preserve life, but fear can quickly rob us of life altogether. And that's especially true when our circumstances are accompanied by lies, by lies. Fear is is caused not only by what our eyes can see, but about soul-level lies that we believe about ourselves, or especially lies that we believe about God. Verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. In 2 Samuel 16, the longer account of this episode, as David is is fleeing Absalom, there's this man named Shimei. And Shimei stands a little bit of a ways off as David and his band are leaving Jerusalem and he just starts shouting curses down upon David. He's essentially saying, you're finished, David. Remember how how you deposed Saul? Saul displeased God and God was finished with him and then then you became the king? Well, the same thing is now happening to you. Absalom is now the king. God's displeased with you. Your evil has come back upon you. You're finished. That's a deeper kind of fear, is it not? It's it's not about his circumstances as much. It's about his identity, his soul, his core understanding of who God is and who God has promised to be for David. Because David is the king. He's the anointed one. It's a central part of Of his identity in his life. God made a covenant with David that one of his sons would always sit on Israel's throne. And now one of his sons is on that throne, but it's not the right one. David must be thinking in this moment, man, it wasn't supposed to happen like this. Right? Was it? Because Shimei and apparently many others are saying, actually, this is how it's supposed to happen. This is God's new plan. You displeased God just as Saul displeased God. You replaced Saul now Absalom replaces you. God's finished with you. See, it's always the lies that are just close enough to the truth that have some kind of hint of truth around them that are the most deceptive and the most believable. And David could very easily have absorb those words from Shimei and the others who were saying there's no salvation for you in God and buried them deep in his soul and become enslaved to fear. Now that doesn't happen thankfully and we'll see why in a minute. But first this morning ask yourself what kind of lies have the power to enslave me? Each of us ask yourself, what kind of lies have the power to enslave me? Are they lies about your value and your worth? as a human being, an image bearer of God? Are they lies about how much you can actually control circumstantially in your life? Are they lies like the one that David hears in Psalm 3? Lies about God's love for you? Lies about God's protection of you? A counselor named Ed Welch writes this, Listen to your fears, and you hear them speak about things that have personal meaning to you. They appear to be attached to things we value. So to deeply understand fear, we must also look at ourselves and the way we interpret our situations. It can reveal what we cherish. He's saying there, in other words, if we're willing to listen, our fears reveal so much. They help us to not only see the lies that we believe, but the idols that live underneath those lies, the things that our hearts cherish that they're not actually meant to To cherish that way. And if we just step back for a second, have we not all seen this play out the last 18 months of our lives? And we could talk about that broadly and culturally this morning. I'm more interested in how we've seen that play out in each of our own hearts. This has been, in so many ways, a year of fear been a year of fear. In one way or another, it seems like we've been, all of us, so inclined to function out of a deep place of fear. And for some, that's perhaps been a fear of contracting COVID-19 or a loved one contracting COVID-19 or transmitting it unaware. And until someone can guarantee me that none of that stuff is going to happen, that no adverse effects are going to happen to me, I'm not moving. I'm not doing a thing until someone guarantees me everything's okay. For others, it's been a fear of losing your livelihood or losing personal freedoms. Maybe it's been a fear of being a pawn of government authority. It's been a fear of looking stupid, whatever that means for you, whatever it means to look stupid for you, who you're afraid of looking stupid in front of. Fear has characterized so much of this past year. Wherever you've experienced that, even if you've bounced back and forth between those types of fear, which is entirely possible, Listen to those fears, not to, not to believe them, not to get those fears deep into your soul. Listen to them in order to understand more about where they're actually coming from. Because you've perhaps had short bursts of fear that have been really good and really necessary and helpful. But a lot of our fear comes from lies. And that fear reveals deep-seated idols that we may never have seen before in our life or at least not seen as clearly as we might be seeing them Now, the idol of safety, the idol of personal rights, the idol of control, the idol of reputation. Even when, like David does in this moment, you have valid reasons to feel fear, you will feel fear. Take the additional step of seeking to understand what really is causing your fear. Pay attention to both eyes and lies. Now, that's what causes fear, Then second, let's talk about what calms or combats fear. What is it that calms or combats fear? Well, in a word, faith. Faith. What is faith? We'll go back to the very elementary principles of what it is that Christians believe. What is faith? Faith is unseen truth. Unseen truth. Hebrews chapter 11, as the author of Hebrews puts it. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of what? Things not seen. Or as the Apostle Paul will write in 2 Corinthians 4, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're passing away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So think about this. Where fear is caused by our eyes and lies, fear is calmed. fear is combated by believing the truth beyond what our eyes can see in that moment. It's unseen truth which is the definition of, of faith. It's not ignoring what our eyes see, not at all. It's just looking more intently at the unseen truth in that moment. And so there is an incredible, and I hope you heard it, an incredible turning point in this psalm. And it comes right there at the beginning of verse three. But you, O Lord, P- commit those words, put those words deep into your soul. But you, O Lord. David chooses in the middle of this psalm to have faith, to look more intently, even though his circumstances are bad and he's fearful from them, he chooses to look more intently at the unseen truth about who God really is. What specifically does he call to mind? What does faith look like for David in Psalm 3? Well, for one, that God is a shield. That God is a shield. As Tim Keller points out, this uh, word in the original language, this word for shield, can refer to two different kinds of shields. One is a smaller shield, one that would be used in hand-to-hand combat. Uh, The other is a really big door-sized shield. So think of like one of the the epic battle scenes from Lord of the Rings, like one of the massive shields that the army kind of all holds together when they move toward a city or a stronghold. When David here says that God is a shield about me or around me, he's referring to that second kind of shield, the really big one. That kind of shield doesn't work in retreat. That doesn't work when you're running away. That, That shield is actually used when you're making an advance, when you're laying siege to a stronghold. And so Tim Keller points out, God's protection only works forwards, In other words, we have to keep trusting him. We have to keep trusting his future protection, especially in the moments where it's really difficult or near impossible to see how that's going to come about. Though David is retreating, he's physically fleeing Jerusalem in this moment, it is not by any means an all-out retreat. He is not quitting. He is not giving in to his fear. Even as he is fleeing, he's remembering, God is my shield. I have to keep looking to him for his future protection. God is also, David says, my glory. My glory. Glory means weight, like a heaviness. And David is saying here, God, you are the weightiest thing. You are the greatest and most substantial thing in my life. Fear is caused when we make something else our glory. And so this act of faith is saying, no, actually, God, you're the one that belongs there. Putting God back in his rightful place as his glory, David is, com- is calming and combating His fear. Before this moment, David might have been looking to any number of other things as his glory. He might have been looking to to Absalom, his son. We read in that longer account, Absalom was one of his favorite sons. He was the most handsome. He had a lot of long flowing hair. It ended up being kind of his downfall. He got stuck in a tree by it and that's how he died. But he loved Absalom, which is probably why he didn't actually want to rebuke him or correct him. Why he struggled to do the right thing in those moments. Maybe Absalom was his glory. Maybe it was his power and his position as king. Maybe it was all the friends he had around him, the army he had around him. All of that has now been stripped away. But his fear is calmed when he remembers that actually none of those things is his glory. God alone is his glory. And then David says, God is the lifter of my head. The lifter of my head. The lies whether it's to David or to you, the lies scream things like, God's abandoned you. You're too far gone. There's no salvation for you in God. Who do you think you are? And we hear those lies and our, our heads fall. And they, we look low in the shame and in the despair and in the grief of that. But God is the lifter of heads. God says, no, 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 look up. Look up, look at me. Look at me, I have not left you. I have not abandoned you, even if it seems that I have. Every time that that we gather together for worship, as we're doing this morning, the last thing that you will hear is a benediction. It's a benediction. It's It's a final word of blessing upon the people of God as they prepare to go back out into the world. As many of you know, uh, as many of you who who call this church your, your church home, you could probably quote verbatim, whenever I offer a benediction, I say, now what? Now lift your heads, lift your eyes, and receive this charge and this benediction which I pronounce upon you in Jesus' name. Why do I say that? Well, because during our gathering, you might have experienced some deep conviction of sin. You might have done some stuff that you really need to repent of. You might also be really fearful about what's coming at you the minute you walk out these doors. What's coming at you later today? What's coming at you later this week or this month? But whatever it is that you experience when you gather together in worship, you get to leave the gathering of God's people looking up. Why? Because God is the lifter of your head. He's the lifter of your head. Two more things that David calls to mind here in Psalm 3 that God reigns and God sustains. So God is the reigning king. That's the next thing David says. Even though he's been deposed, God, the eternal king, is still on his throne. He's bringing that foundational truth of Psalm 2 to bear, the very next Psalm. Where is God in this moment of David's fear? Look at verse 4. On his holy hill. God is right where he's supposed to be, right where he always is when David was actually fleeing Jerusalem, initially the priests took up the Ark of the Covenant and they fled with David. They took the Ark of the Covenant and started to march out of the city with him. But in this moment of great faith, David says in 2 Samuel 15, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and I will look upon both it and his dwelling place. The Ark which symbolizes the the presence of God. Where does it belong? It belongs in God's city. Because God, even though David is not on his throne, God is on his. The eternal king is always on his throne. And then lastly, God is the sustainer. sustainer. As David says there in verse five, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. We take this for granted so often in our lives. If you woke up this morning, and you did, because you're here. I'm thankful for that. It's because God sustained you. And if you wake up tomorrow morning, and if you wake up the morning after that, it will only and ever be because God sustained you. That is the reason that we have breath in our lungs. So you can think about it this way. Sleep is functional faith. <laughs> Some people are going to get way too excited about that. You've got like your, you know, folks that just like sleep a ton. But yeah, sleep is functional faith. It's not just biological, it absolutely is a physiological need that our bodies have, but sleep is also theological. It's a nightly, a daily declaration that I am dependent, that the world does not spin on its axes because of my activity, but because of God's. And when you're really anxious, when you're really fearful about something, that is when you tend to lose sleep. That's when you're up at all hours of the night. It's when you're replaying all that happened that previous day and how you wish you could have done it differently. It's when you're thinking about all the things that might happen tomorrow, all the plausible scenarios and thinking, okay, well, if that happens, I'll go this way. And if this happens, I'll go that way. And your eyes do not shut and you don't rest. But as Solomon goes on to write in Psalm 127, God gives to his beloved sleep. It's a gift from God and it is an act of faith each and every day in our lives. Mundane as it, as it might seem, it's an act of faith to put your head on the pillow and call it quits for the day because you're, you're not ultimately in charge, God is. In Psalm 3, we see here that when eyes and lies bring fear, David is making a choice to focus on unseen truth. He's making a choice to do that. He's not ignoring his circumstances. He's not burying his head in the sand. He's fleeing Jerusalem to stay alive. But as he's doing that, he's making a conscious decision to choose faith over fear. And to declare, as he says there in verse 6, I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid. Where, friends, do you need to make that same declaration in your own life today? What fear has so plagued you, has so consumed you this past week or this past month or this past year? Over what fear, by faith in the living God, do you need to to actually declare today, I will not be afraid? Each one of us has a finite amount of mental and emotional capacity. And And the thing about fear is, it is insatiable. It is insatiable. It will always consume as much as it possibly can and then some. So you and I have to make intentional and conscious choices to starve fear, to interrupt its appetite. Instead of letting our eyes become overwhelmed with all that we're seeing, and instead of letting the lies run unchecked, we have to actually choose to focus on the unseen truths about God's nature and character and work, especially in those moments when it's hard to see them. Practically, one of, the, one of the best ways that, that I've found to do this is by asking myself a question. Whenever the lies and the fears begin to really spiral uh, in my own heart, and I can have the sanity, I can have the presence of mind in a given moment to do this, I'll stop and I'll try to ask myself, what would Jesus say to me in this moment? What would Jesus say to me right now? If he, if he were physically in the room with me, if he were looking into my eyes, what would he say to me right now. And I would encourage you when fear rises up in you to ask yourself that same question. And also because for so many reasons, many of us, most of us battle all kinds of warped perceptions about God and who he is and what he actually would say to us in those moments. Do this in community with each other. Ask trusted men and women who have been walking with Jesus for a while. Ask pastors and elders. Uh, Ask your Bible study group leaders. Say, Hey, I'm struggling right now. I'm really afraid. What would Jesus say to me right now? The other thing that we see here in Psalm 3, the other way to calm fear or to combat fear, is what David does as he closes this psalm. What does he do? He prays. He prays. He cries out to God. And the reason that I'm saying that prayer combats fear, that I'm using the word combat, is because David's prayer here actually resembles a war cry. Verse seven, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, strike my enemies on the cheek, break the teeth of the wicked. This is essentially the same prayer, the same thing that Moses would say every time the Ark of the Covenant set out ahead of the people as they wandered through the wilderness. Your prayers, when you're afraid, need not be long or flowery. Help me is a great prayer. Deliver me. Rise up, God. Come to my aid. All of these are really short but really profound and faith-filled prayers in moments of fear. And most of the lies that you and I hear that cause fear are not going to come from flesh and blood enemies like Shimei. I mean, maybe you have a Shimei in your life, and I'm sorry if you do. That's rough. That's rough. But most of the lies that we're going to believe are going to come not from flesh and blood adversaries, but from Satan, from the great adversary of our soul. How will you combat him when he lies to you and tries to enslave you in fear? Willpower? Self-help books? The power of positive thinking? Good luck. Good luck. Or you could take up what Paul calls the shield of faith. The sword of the spirit which is the word of God and you could pray. You could cry out to God. You could prevail upon God to do what he promised he would do and to be for you who he promised he would be. You could cry out to God to act on your behalf. Because here's the good news. Act he will. Act he will. Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Our God is the God who saves from the moment that sin entered the world and death and destruction and fear with it, God declared, I will redeem it. I will deliver my good creation. I will deliver my people from the bondage of sin under which they groan. And as that then played out in the generations that followed, God made a promise to bless all nations of the earth through Abraham's family. And when Abraham's family was enslaved for 400 years, he raised up Moses to lead them out And he raised up Joshua to lead the men. And then when finally in the land that he promised to give them, he raised up a king named David who now is writing the Psalm. And he promised to David that one of his sons would reign on the throne forever. As David is fleeing Jerusalem, as he is not on his throne, he can look back on all of those things and remember not one of God's promises have failed. Not one of them. And so I can say in this moment, though it seems impossible to see how it's going to happen, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is God's to give and give it, he will. He either made a covenant with me, David's saying, or he didn't. And if he did, if he is the God who remains faithful, even when we are faithless, then this fear-inducing, otherwise all-consuming moment is as much in his hands as is any other moment. And that means, as he concludes the psalm, at the end of the day, the enemies of God will fall and the people of God are safe and are blessed. Church, how much more do we know this to be true? Because today, this very second, one of David's sons sits on the throne and his name is Jesus. He is great David's greater son. And after making purification for sin on the cross, after triumphing over death, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he will reign until he has put what? All enemies under his feet. At the end of the day, you and I have nothing to fear but God. And God is the one who saves. (laughs) Salvation belongs to the Lord, and in Jesus Christ, salvation has once for all and once for always been secured. So beyond what you can see with your eyes and over and against the lies that you are prone to believe, now, friends, today, lift your heads and look to Jesus and let him be to you your shield, your glory, the lifter of your head. Let him be the ever-reigning, sustaining king that he is. Calm and combat your fear with faith in the one to whom salvation belongs. May the blessing of God be upon his people. Because truly in Jesus Christ, it is. It is. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, forgive our fear and forgive the unbelief that lives underneath it. Help our unbelief. We expect to face fear in this life. It's a result of the fall. It's a result of sin. But we ask now for strength from your spirit in those moments of fear to be people of great faith, to look beyond what our eyes can see, to look more intently at the unseen truth about who you are and who you have revealed yourself to be. Thank you that in Jesus, salvation has been secured. Salvation belongs to you and you give it freely in Jesus. And so now prepare us to come to his table where he offered up his body, where he shed his blood to give that salvation to all who would come to him in faith. Help us to come in faith. Help us to even in these moments to follow, to combat the fear that we have in our own hearts right now by walking forward, by feasting on the finished work of Jesus, by stepping back out into this world that you love courageously, boldly, faithfully because of what you have accomplished for us. Thank you that salvation belongs to you. We come now to feast upon your finished work, to taste again of the grace you have poured out in Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.libertyharrisburg.org.